Long ago, before C.S. Lewis or J.R.R. Tolkien, and before even George MacDonald or G.K. Chesterton, lived another fantasy writer, British poet Edmund Spencer. In the 1590s, his epic adventure was published in six books. It's a fantasy allegorical poem written in nine-line stanzas and involving phrases like iambic pentameter and other incredible facts we need explained by a literature expert. So in this episode, we will be joined by Rebecca K. Reynolds. She's a classic literature educator, audiobook narrator, and editorial director for Oasis Family Media. Rebecca will introduce us to a long-forgotten classic being given new life this year, The Fairy Queen. Welcome anew to Fantastical Truth, a podcast from Lorehaven in which we explore fantastical stories for God's glory and apply their meanings to the real world. I'm me, Stephen Burnett, Lorehaven's publisher, the co-author of The Pop Culture Parent, and one who struggles with poetry, so I'm really interested in today's topic. And I'm Zachary Russell, and I've always wanted to go on an epic poetic adventure, but I too struggle with rhyming. I'm basically limited to dad jokes. And this is episode 145. How did Edmund Spencer's The Fairy Queen shape Christian fantasy with Rebecca K. Reynolds? I can't wait for this, Stephen. We're going to go on adventures from knights to dragons, enchanters, monsters, and many strange lands. Miracles, all these things. <laughs> Uh, stop rhyming. I mean it. Anybody want a peanut? That's <laughs> exactly. about the extent yeah, of the yep. poems. Yes. <laughs> now, of course, we just got through the Christmas season a few weeks ago, and, and there are poems, poems galore at Christmas season, but they're accompanied by music, and so we call them songs. So if you struggle with the idea of reading a poem, well, just think about it being sung. Uh, songs are poems set to music, and so we're all exposed to these. I think, as uh, Rebecca points out later, there's this stigma that get attached uh, to poetry, that it's uh, somehow an elite art form. Uh, it's inaccessible. Uh, it's what my co-author Ted Turneau would say is limited to the sacred spaces, the museums and the fancy places where you have to know uh, which side of the plate goes the knife and the fork and all of this. And yet poems are intrinsic to our God-given creativity. They're something that people have made up over generations and millennia. It's something that we not only need to know about, but want to know about. So I'm aware of my shortcomings, and I'm really looking forward to this discussion as well. First, however, let's stop by our first sponsor for this episode. Now, we're doing this interview regardless of who's the sponsor, but the sponsor for this episode is Oasis Family Media with Sky Turtle Press. That's the new imprint they've started uh, launching uh, this new version of the Fairy Queen the Fairy Queen, C.S. Lewis wrote, never loses a reader it has once gained. Once you have become an inhabitant of its world, being tired of it is like being tired of London or of life. That's what C.S. Lewis wrote. Welcome to Edmund Spencer's The Fairy Queen, the new text-faithful line-by-line prose rendering of Spencer's epic poem introduces new readers to Spencer's enthralling world of monsters, enchanted forests, witches, and brave but fumbling knights. To help readers overcome this struggle, classical educator Rebecca K. Reynolds worked with Elizabethan scholars to produce an annotated rendering, which moves from heavy assistance in book one toward more of Spencer's language in book six. This week's episode is sponsored by Sky Turtle Press, publishers of Edmund Spencer's The Fairy Queen, which launches on Kickstarter January 16th and releasing in September 2023. 
You can find those links in our show notes for episode 145 or get all of them plus a glimpse of the illustrations by going to lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors. Stephen, this is so exciting to see this adaptation from poetry to prose. Just last week, we talked about adaptations from books to films or streaming TV shows. And so this is quite a different adaptation we're talking about today. And I'm really curious to hear from Rebecca why they undertook this project and kind of what the reasons for it are. Um, you know, you, you read a lot of ancient poetry like Shakespeare or even further back, and it's it's fascinating, but it's it's hard and it's it's hard to get into. It's hard to understand sometimes, but in, in a weird sort of way, it's easy to remember when the written word or the oral word rhymes, it does make it a little bit easier to remember. I mean, every song, you know, rhymes, but so much of uh, pop music now, it's just uh, rhyming words with no meaning. And what, what poetry excels at is deep and rich meaning. And sometimes it's so chewy that you really can't uh, swallow it, so to speak. So I can't wait to hear about how this process went about. Yeah, speaking of difficulty eating, uh, some people view poetry as very dried out, but sometimes you just need a little rehydration. And that's how Rebecca's going to get in the studio. Let's see what that's about. Rebecca K. Reynolds has just entered the studio by means of one of those little capsules that you soak in water overnight until they grow to life size. She is the editorial director of Oasis Family Media and Sky Turtle Press. She's also the author of a text-faithful prose rendering of Edmund Spencer's 1590s epic poem, The Fairy Queen, and of Courage, Dear Heart by Nav Press. Rebecca is a longtime member of the Rabbit Room, and she has spoken at Hutchmoot, both in the U.S. and the U.K. She taught high school literature for seven years and has written lyrics for Ron Block of Alison Krauss Union Station. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining Fantastical Truth. Thank you so much for having me. Great to have you here, Rebecca. So tell us, how did you originally discover biblical faith and fantastical stories? Well, that's a complicated question, I guess. My son uh, and some of his friends, he's 15, and they have started to kind of try to revive Pokemon Go. Isn't that the one where you go catch a little Pokemon with your phone? And so yesterday we were having a conversation. This does relate, by the way. Um, (laughs) He he was trying to tell me about the metamorphosis from the Igglybuff to the Jigglypuff to the wiggly tough i guess that's how that goes oh we are Um, engaging pop culture parenting here this is fantastic (laughs) and so i feel like my walk uh both with literature and with faith has been sort of you know all these different iterations that i didn't realize were actually connected until now i mean and probably still don't understand how they're all going to connect um i was came to know jesus i guess at about age 10 um but I was primarily uh, an entomologist. I collected insects for 12 years and did a bunch of research, had gone to different countries and, you know, with research that I had done when I was 15 or 16 and thought that I was going to study insects the rest of my life. Um, I went to college and during my freshman English class, teacher began to go through a poem. And second to my salvation, that was probably the most striking day of my life. I just realized at that moment that there were people out there like me who, who needed books, who needed words, um, who used words at the heart level the way that I did. And so that was kind of my quickening um, in terms of literature and switched my major that day. Um, and then 
I guess little pieces of, of, of things began to come together. Um, and this is kind of embarrassing to admit, but do you know the song, um, Your Wildest Dreams by Moody Blues? I don't think In so. Your Wildest Dreams, it's an old, like, it's a funky old, like, um, huh. achy kind of dreamy song. And it's, it would be well, now that you've if mentioned you listen it, to I'll it. probably find out about it or I'll hear it mentioned later today. <laughs> but there were little things like that that kind of made me kind of feel like there's a fantasy of fantasy world, the strange things that would interact with my life. And then reading Madeline Langle and Narnia, um, reading old epics and all of these different pieces. I loved them, but I didn't realize until I got older how they intersected and kind of created in me what um, the German word I think is Zeinzucht, which it means homesickness for a place that you've never been. And I realized, okay, that's the unifying theme. That's what's pulling all this together. And um, I think Jesus kind of pulls us toward himself through different things like that and kind of gives us a glimpse of, of eternity through those, through those things. So complicated journey. Lewis describes that as being the same uh, feeling that he felt when, oddly enough, seeing this little, um, what was it, like a, a little miniature garden in a tin uh, that his younger brother had made. And he just felt that glimpse of that inexpressible longing. Uh, led him into literature and ancient languages and all of that, but it, it leads many believers into many different types of jobs. So just to confirm, Rebecca, uh, this this time when you discovered poetry in your class, uh, that made you want to switch from endomology to etymology? <laughs> Entomology to etymology, yes, that's right. Um, and I still love science. I love the scientific world, but I just, the language is such an incredible thing in the way that there's not just denotation in terms of dictionary definitions, but connotations and how we can use words. And suddenly we understand the feeling of a thing instead of just what it means. And that's, that's pretty close to magical, I think. Yeah. So, so you, you grew up uh, in the similar vein as Eustace Scrub, right? You know, studying <laughs> bugs and facts and science and, yep. you know, history and, and then, you switch to language and you, you switch to the arts, uh, but you didn't have to turn into a dragon. So beforehand, so that, that's good. Oh, that is I helpful. Been a drag- that's helpful. I've been a dragon stage. many times. I have been a dragon, unfortunately. <laughs> the <laughs> dragon needed to is get the this. sinful nature. Spoiler <laughs> alert. <laughs> so Re- Rebecca, since then uh, you've of course uh, gotten involved, not only with this uh, fundraiser we'll speak about for uh, the fairy queen uh, projects, uh, but you've also been recording audiobooks and doing a lot of work with uh, Oasis Family Media and now launching this new imprint, uh, Sky Turtle. Before we get to that, though, uh, first question here, what led you to uh, your teaching? Uh, you also became a teacher of literature about these famous books uh, and then later on uh, recording the audio version. So continuing your backstory. Well, I love teaching. Teenagers are my favorite people group. I just I think they're incredible. They seem scary, I guess, a little bit at the beginning, but on the inside, they're just giant toddlers. I think, <laughs> with a lot of <laughs> bless their hearts, a lot of curiosity and um, creativity, and so many beautiful things. I love toddlers too, so that's a compliment, actually. But um, there's a lot in them that is admirable, and so there's something incredible about being in a classroom with a bunch of teenagers with good books and poetry, and I miss it. I'm I'm glad to have had the chance to work on the Fairy Queen, but I do miss I I do miss being a teacher and I miss teaching. Were you teaching in public schools, uh, classic, uh, private? Uh, what what sorts of schools have you uh, been blessed to teach in? There was a university model school that I taught in for a little while, but 
I spent seven years in a classical Christian school. Oh, fantastic. I, I often wonder what would have happened if I I actually ended up being in uh, a classical school. I was homeschooled uh, as well, but I've met so many people who've benefited from that model of education in particular. Uh, makes me wonder how Earth 2 Stephen uh, did. He's probably uh, probably ended up going into academia or something. Uh, but uh, I like what I'm doing now too. But then I get to learn from you about uh, these famous books. Uh, and uh, Oasis Family Media has this classic line of audiobooks that have been adapted for uh, the children's audience. But of course, you, you yourself as well have uh, written a book. But how did you get then uh, from teaching about these books uh, to actually reading them out loud professionally? Uh, now over uh, 60 of them, I think I counted uh, at the Oasis website. Well, I had written a book for Nav Press and went to Carol Stream to record. And the audio engineer called the the president back and just said, listen to her. I guess some voices just work on recording better than others. And I was able, because I read in, in front of students so much, I was able to have low error rate because I, I feel, I feel like reading to teenagers is a really good way for them to fall in love with literature. So it just kind of happened and they recruited me to start recording. So you were reading out loud for hours, uh, some of these classical works in, to your classes. Yeah. I just think there's an intimidation factor that can come with mm. telling students to just sit down and read this, you know, and I, I'm actually a big proponent of watching Shakespeare before you read it. I don't understand. We would never hand someone an orchestral score and say, read this. Don't you appreciate this music? Like it, it was written to be watched. And my graduate degree is actually in storytelling, <laughs> believe it or not. There's a, it's basically oral literature, the oral history of literature. And humans, for so long, we had story through audio. That's how stories were passed down. And so deep within us, there's a wiring that needs to hear, I think, story. You know, as if you can, there are people who can't hear. But I mean, I think that it's a powerful thing for students to, to listen. It's funny. I, I just, now that you say that, it made sense of something that's happening in our family. My youngest daughter, who's eight, um, has listened to do six out of seven of the Chronicles of Narnia audiobooks. We have the Focus on the Family, yeah, Radio Theater, you know, full cast production, which are excellent. So I, I've been buying her the hardback, the individual hardback editions of Narnia. We we have a few different versions of it, but I've really been falling in love with these like kind of vintage hardbacks with these 1990s or whatever illustrations on them. And I found the the last one just the other day at the store and I brought it home and I was like, hey, you know, we got the complete set now. Uh, you can read it. She's like, well, I've listened to all of them except for the last battle. So once I do that, then I can read them. And I was like, that's so interesting that she wants to listen to them first before reading them. And, I, and I'm also reading them very, very slowly to them, like out loud. I think you're right about that, that it's it's a lot easier to read a book after you've listened to it. That That's a very fascinating insight. And some, some of that depends on the way a student learns. I think you know, there are many different ways that people are wired to learn. Yeah, I really think there's a benefit to it. And, and the supremacy of the written word, I feel like, is a little odd if you look at historical context. There's a book by Walter Ong called Orality and Literacy that really explore some of this. It's really interesting if you want to look into it. Well, there's actually, uh, this may be a, a beside the point thing here, but 
There's actually a slight uh, apologetics angle to this as well, because one of the lines that we hear sometimes from skeptics of Christianity is the line that these were orally transmitted stories uh, passed around by illiterate tribes. Uh, and yet one who knows of the work that it takes to practice speaking these things out loud in a particular order uh, and contributing to the cultivation of the mind and memorization that way, uh, this is not this uh, this ridiculously uh, paraphrased process that a lot of people think in the back of their minds. Uh, that is a habit that can be trained and practiced by intellectuals as well as the common man so that you get uh, oral transmitted stories that are generally faithful to their original versions. Uh, it's not simply a game of casual telephone uh, where so many things are being lost uh, in the translation. Now, of course, Christians believe, yeah, and they, uh, in, in, in the in, inerrant inspiration uh, of the original text as well, uh, but uh, oral uh, oral tradition being passed uh, through the generations is not so vulnerable to error as we might suppose. You're right. It's a good point. So, Laura Haven, we love talking about fantastical stories, new and old. We're talking about a story now, the Fairy Queen, that has been now 500 years old or more. But let's jump real quick to some of the newer stories that we find for our second sponsor author Jamie Foley. We're promoting today her Catrosi Revolution series. This epic fantasy series starts with Emberhawk, but book two, Silverblood, won the General Fantasy Award at Realm Makers in July 2022. And I should know, I was there. If you enjoy the political intrigue of Game of Thrones or Lord of the Rings, but with an emphasis on deep characters and romance throughout the adventure, this is the series for you. Imagine what the American Revolution would have been like if the native tribes had allied with the settlers to fight off the British. Except the natives can manipulate light and sound with magic. And the Queen of England is a water elemental who fancies herself a goddess. Emberhawk is available now in hardcover, paperback, audiobook, and every ebook format at emberhawk.com. You can get that link in our show notes for episode 145, or for more details, go to lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors. Yet sometimes the Queen of England needs to be celebrated in an epic poem at the end of the 16th century, and sometimes she is a water elemental who's the villain of the piece. You just never know with the Queen of England. So speaking of uh, these amazing stories uh, that have to be read out loud often uh, to be appreciated, uh, and by the way, it's surprising how many authors we interview who got their start because a parent, uh, a father or mother, has read out loud to them a story and awakened in them this love for literature and these fantastic worlds. Uh, why, Rebecca, did you come to love uh, specifically uh, the Edmund Spencer a classic fantasy poem all 36,000 lines, I believe he said, of the Fairy Queen. Yeah, it's a difficult poem. I was teaching Renaissance Lit, and we had built into the curriculum Shakespeare and Marlowe, of course, and I love Shakespeare and Marlowe. But we had in the curriculum just an assignment to teach one canto of Spencer uh, for the purpose of, of the students learning Elizabethan language, which is a terrible reason to read Spencer because he loved Chaucer. The, the language in which Spencer wrote never actually existed. He kind of created this language for the fairy ah, queen, okay. pulling a lot back from the past. And so it, it really is not a good example of Elizabethan lit per se. Um, but I, the students just, they struggled. Kids who could easily go through Julius Caesar um, were really having a hard time. And I just thought this this poem has been too influential 
for too many people. C.S. Lewis loved it. There's Narnia all through the Fairy Queen um, till we have faces. You'll, I mean, you can just see the profound influence on C.S. Lewis. George MacDonald, Wordsworth, so many people were influenced by the Fairy Queen that just kind of fell out of discussion. And so I went home that night and spent many hours transposing the old text into a story and then went back into the classroom and just read it as I would read it storytelling wise, read it to them. And they were absolutely, they fell in love with it and they didn't want me to stop. And they said, well, what happens now? You know, these monsters have just exploded by drinking their mother's blood and, you know, like give me more. Oh, that give is me very more. intriguing. Okay. Yeah. It's crazy. Um, the stuff that his imagination was just, uh, I mean, I- incredible that, that he was able to tell innovative serendipitous stories again and again and again and again for that long is, is amazing. His imagine and his world building was unprecedented. So, so who was Edmund Spencer? Just a quick bio uh, growing up in the 16th century. He had this poem published in the, the 1590s, but what led to him putting this thing together, uh, kind of coming up with his own spin on this retro language from Chaucer a few centuries, even previous to him. Well, his educational background's a little, um, uncertain. Uh, Most think that he went to a state-sponsored school, came from either a lower to middle-class family, um, and he was an employee of the English government living in English-occupied Ireland in a castle called Kilcolan, eventually working for Lord Grey. And he had originally been kind of a pastoral poet, um, but while living in this land that was hostile to him, of course, and I could tell you more about why there was tension there between the English and the Irish at that point. But, you know, here he is living in this castle. A sweet friend of mine from Ireland actually sent up a drone and took video footage so you could see kind of the the land around. And it made more sense once I could see the land. What do you do if you're alone? He just started writing these stories. And the first three were actually published in 1590. He sent that collection to uh, the court and they loved them. And then he wrote the second three. His letter to Walter Raleigh, he had planned to write 12. And one of the cool things that happens in The Fairy Queen is, you know, he had he had planned to write these as a study in, in ethics. But like what happens to so many good authors, the story overtook him. You know, he started with one goal and then his imagination grew and, grew, and somewhere around book three, he just breaks loose and just gets absorbed in the story. So it's wonderful to see his progression. And then he was disappointed while living there. And kind of went through a deconstruct, what we would call deconstruction. And so uh. you can see some of the heartbreak that happens. In fact, the last book of the Fairy Queen ends very sadly. It just, he's very disappointed in the world and how things work. And then they found a fragment after he died. Two, two cantos that had not been included with the rest of it. And those actually, C.S. Lewis said, there couldn't be a better ending. Um, it's wonderful that those were discovered and I don't want to spoil that ending for you, but. So there are alternative endings uh, similar to professor Tolkien coming up with uh, all these different original names for the hobbits and strider and all of this, uh, that I saw in the, the background on the fairy queen website, uh, fairyqueen.com. It's unique spelling. You can find the link in the show notes folks. Uh, but there was a new ending for book three, but there were six books total. So there's also a fragment that uh, changes the ending of book six, or, or how do these different endings work? That's a great question. So uh, I'll answer the second question first. The Fairy Queen officially, the 1596 version ends with the end of book six, which is sad. 
they found the other two fragments after Spencer had died. So that we call that book seven or fragment. That's why when you look up the fairy queen, sometimes it'll say six books. Sometimes it'll say seven. What they're referring oh, to I is see. that last little bit that it's hard to know what to call it because all the other books have 12 cantos. And then we just have these two little, two little cantos remaining. But um, book three, so that was in the first, the first uh, set, books one through three. And yes, he did go in and change the ending to book three and created a new one in when he released the whole set. And that is, it really changes some things. C.S. Lewis thought that had he continued the series, he was going to take some of what was in that first ending and integrate it later. But Kilcolman was attacked. He ran back to, to England. Some think his, a son of his died in that attack on the castle, and he died the next year. So Spencer wrote this in a castle. <laughs> in this uh, big open field, already sounds and, uh, fantastical. I, I mean, right? Like, <laughs> how, how many, how many of my author friends are like, I'd go write a book in a castle. I mean, that sounds <laughs> amazing. If you actually like, go to a castle, you're not going to want to sit there and write a book. <laughs> you're going to go explore. It's a castle. <laughs> but I mean, if you're staying there for a, a long period of time, that. But but that's interesting that he goes on this kind of emotional roller coaster of a journey of all these different experiences he has there and, and he and it has this kind of would you say it's like an anticlimactic ending or just a tragic ending or like no well, we don't want to give yeah. away the ending but i'm well, very okay. curious too like what exactly is yeah. the story uh there yeah. and what would have led him to subvert the subversion if we can call it a subversion i think i can answer that without giving the ending away okay, so, okay. and initially so it starts out with a high chivalric tale so Standard Arthur, some of the, and even though it's Spencer's imagination was so great, I have trouble calling anything that he does standard, but you would recognize, you know, the court is the center of civilization. That's where you're going to learn manners. That's where you're going to learn how to be a gentleman and everything outside of that needs to be enlightened by what is present in the court. And C.S. Lewis was, of course, born in Ireland. And he says the fairy queen is a journey of a man slowly becoming an Irishman. So the landscape around him starts to impact him and how he feels about court. And after, you know, if you can imagine one of us middle class, lower class growing up and having this grand ideal that we're going to go to the center of culture and then kind of the, the gleam of it wears off after you realize you're not going to get there. And then you start to kind of accept your surroundings and, and he moves toward the pastoral at the end. And in fact, the last book is about courtesy. And his conclusion is it has more to do with the local people living close to the earth and in nature. So it's it's really a cool progression. So he becomes a hippie and a 15th century <laughs> Irish hippie. I love or it. just becomes uh, at, 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 not at one with nature, because I think a lot of Christians read this and they start to squirm a little bit and they go hey this sounds kind of new age this sounds kind of some magical earthy stuff i don't know what to do with this but biblically christians do have this connection to the earth not because we are part of the earth or any of this mystical stuff but because god has given us this creation it is our home it is intended to be our home uh, and it's only after the fall that we find ourselves uh in uh, disunity with our purpose as stewards over creation so i'm guessing that a lot of these themes are going to be intrinsic to a work like this. You're right. This uh, brings to mind uh, Andy Crouch's book, Culture Making, where he talks about this tension that we feel sometimes of wanting to just go out and live in nature, just the untamed wild world versus the, the overly 
curated, civilized world of Disney World, <laughs> like the theme park world that where everything is totally under control and there's no risks involved at all. Whereas if you live in a mountain cabin, it's like you're exposed to everything, uh, but you're you're there in this kind of uncivilized, unpolluted world. So he he goes through this process in that book of of kind of coming to terms with some of those things. And yeah, I I've definitely had those impulses in different times. I've I've lived in very quiet settings. I've lived in very busy, uh, very urban settings. Naomi and I joke all the time about wanting to move out in rural Texas and just retire somewhere with a good you know Starlink connection, so I can at least uh, be online, <laughs> not totally cut off from the world. But I can definitely see that in Lewis's writings, and so it's interesting how he was then influenced by this. He really loved God's creation, and he and he loved just exploring that through his through his stories. You mentioned a sense of longing, and I think that's what a lot of people feel. It's like there's something not quite right with hyper urbanization, but then you go out in nature and you're like, oh, that, there's something not right there either. You know, no, no matter which way you look at it, we live in a fallen world, and so with the journey that the characters go on in this book, what are some of your insights? Well, the the fairy queen is not really. It's strange because initially he intended it to be didactic. And, you know, you hear about allegory and all the downsides of allegory. And I agree with a lot of Tolkien's criticism about allegory. But the Fairy Queen, it teaches by walking beside you through fairyland instead of a more heavy-handed approach where you're discovering alongside Spencer. And he's not a reductionist. He allows a lot of tension and a lot of complexity. So anybody who might come to this just wanting sort of um, ammunition for their, you know, Christian agenda or, you know, whatever, they're going to be disappointed because this is more about a soul's journey and the the actual complexities that you encounter. And, and Spencer makes some grave mistakes. C.S. Lewis did not like book five at, at all. Interesting. And, and for good reason. It's about justice. And so Spencer because of some things that happened with the war, the Rose, Wars of the Roses in England and how that was resolved, he really believed in a heavy-handed government to help with, quote, you know, Ireland's chaos or whatever. And so, I, you know, book five is kind of a, it has some wonderful things about it, about how justice can work, but he also makes some really bad mistakes. And I think that book is actually as important as anything else. As we think about what do we do with power, um, what mistakes oh, wow. can we make thinking that we're doing the right thing? as a nation or as individuals who have cultural power, um, you know, how can we be blind and think meanwhile that we're rescuing people? So some really good discussion material um, can come from, from this. I also like the monsters and the, you know, they're just, it's just fun. I mean, I feel like I'm talking about all the serious stuff, but it's also incredibly imaginative and fun and it's a world building experience. And it's just, there's so many dimensions to the fairy queen. It's very difficult for me to, Talk about it one level, you know. It takes discernment to get through an epic poem, whether it is the original language that can be more obscure for many readers or if it's been modernized. Uh, you need to be, in that case, a discerning pop culture parent, which brings you to our third sponsor for this episode. It be me this time. I saw the open slot at the turn of the year and I hastened to grab it for myself. This resource by Authors Jared Moore and me and my co-author Ted Turno, three authors, one narrative, 
provides scripture-based practical help for parents to enjoy the messy gift of popular culture with their kids. It's a nonfiction book about fiction, but we have a dragon on the cover. We're engaging with fantastical stories for God's glory there at various ages. We have case studies and everything, starting with younger kids and how you can ask our top five questions to figure out the story to analyze the worldview on its own terms, uh, to find the common grace and the beauties in there that do reflect God's gifts in the world, uh, but also find the idols, not just the bad words, not just the isolated pieces of content or the temptations, but the idols. And then we subvert those idols with the gospel. We answer those longings that the story raises but cannot fulfill with the only hero who can fulfill those good longings that he has given us, and that is Jesus Christ. It's a process, it is work, but it's also lots of fun. We had fun writing this nonfiction book, The Pop Culture Parent. Got it published from New Growth Press in fall of 2020, still selling now. You can get more information at our show notes for 145, that episode of Fantastical Truth, or go to lorehammond.com slash podcast sponsors to learn more about uh, my book, co-authored, uh, The Pop Culture Parent. Well, let's let's talk about the monsters then. Uh, moving to <laughs> chapter three here. Uh, if you go to the fairyqueen.com website, fairyqueen.com, it's F-A-E-R-I-E, queen with an E at the end, dot com, uh, you will see, at least as of this recording, a knight fighting a monster. Uh, and this is a gorgeous illustration that I can yeah. only assume will represent uh, the contents of this uh, illustrated uh, pr uh, prose adaptation book that y'all are putting together at the new Sky Turtle Press. So I am just going to shill for that here because it looks amazing. And I want to hear more about how this project came to be. Um, who who approached whom first about this uh, this imprint? Sky Turtle. Uh, what is Sky Turtle doing that is uh, different or unique uh, under the Oasis Family Media umbrella? You know, I, I do have kind of a love for old Japanese monsters. So, I mean, like, did I, <laughs> oh, did I plan this type. to be camera? You know, no, I mean, like, no, not really. But there's also a lot of mythology that talks about like worlds being created on the backs of the turtle, like the old ancient mythology. And so, um, although, of course, that's not how I believe the world began, I think there's something interesting about thinking about being creators, lowercase c in a world, you know, where God has made us in his image to create, to be creators of worlds in some sense. And so um, that that's sort of the origin of the heart of it. How do we, there's so much noise in publishing. There's so much chaos. Publishers are being asked to create things just to generate income so that they can have enough money to do the projects that they believe in. And we want to take um, hopefully a different approach and be very selective and uh, so that people can know that when they come to this, they're going to find something worth their time and uh, that will be good for their souls, maybe complicated sometimes for their souls and challenging, but also ultimately not just to generate income, you know, just something that will be good for the world and good for them. And so uh, I love Andy Crouch's book. And I thought a lot about that actually when, you know, the different types of creation and the, the gardener and the, you know, the, um, artist and creator and cultivator so that's kind of in the heart of this as well so is the fairy queen your very first uh, project under this imprint yeah that'll be our first that'll be there are other things in the work that i can't tell you about but you would be excited if i could tell you about them <laughs> 
can you, so, can you about these other works? I'll get to those in a moment, or maybe we won't because you know NDAs or something. But uh, what's <laughs> are, are, would these be adaptations of classic literature or original stories? Uh, what what sorts of things can you say, if any, uh, without getting in trouble? Yes. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so, right, there we so, go. <laughs> Okay. You heard it There's here, some... folks. Yes, there we go. We just got really highly specific. Okay, so back to the Fairy Queen, though. Um, I, I guess we've already talked about like why why start with this project in particular uh, because of your close connection uh, connection with the work, uh, and as well as the, the need for an updated version. And speaking earlier about creation care, that also includes cultivation. Uh, you pair back some of the plants that maybe you don't want in this particular patch of the garden. Uh, and then after sin, of course, you have to deal with thorns and thistles and other factors that kind of crowd out the orchard uh, that can pull nutrients from the plants. And in this case, you've talked about the undergrowth uh, that has kept some people from appreciating uh, this classic masterpiece. Uh, what then led to this uh, decision to not change everything, but simply offer a prose version of the poem uh, with some language that might be a little bit more accessible to more readers? Well, I'm sure there will be a lot of criticism for even attempting to do this, and I actually agree with that criticism. Um, you cannot take a poem and make prose out of it because of the inherent nature of poetry. I mean, the reason that you build a poem uh, with economy and with ties to things within a stanza, I mean, there, it's, it's a thing that cannot be broken. So in some sense, um, what I did shouldn't be done and can't be done. I'll agree with that. But on the other hand, these stories are fascinating and people are not reading The Fairy Queen. Um, I've heard of so many people who have heard of it, but yet, you know, have tried a little bit and they haven't finished. And so what I did was I let my teacher's heart kind of bleed into this. And I start out with giving, I mean, it's generously footnoted um, to begin with. And then I start out with a lot of help um, and then move toward the end of the sixth. By the time you get to the end of the sixth book, I've slowly integrated the language and taught people kind of how to read it, what to recognize the epic forms. And so by the time you finish with the sixth book, if you want to, you should be ready to graduate to a highly annotated version of the original text. So I see it somewhat as a teaching tool, not as an end in itself, although I think there will be people who don't enjoy reading poetry who need the stories and who will just read this. And I will be thankful for that um, because I think the stories are good and I think they can do our hearts good. Rebecca, I'm, I'm reading the website here and Jonathan Rogers has kind of an endorsement of it here. And it says, um, Rebecca's faithful rendering makes Edmund Spencer's epic available to a whole new audience of 21st century readers. And it, it's funny, like the, the thoughts that go through my head hearing that, because in our last podcast, we were talking about uh, a lot of modern day adaptations that haven't been so well received. And it's usually because of this uh, emphasis on 21st century audience and less emphasis on faithful adaptation. And so I really like seeing both of those in the same sentence. And I, you know, I wanted to ask you about that, but I think you just proved it to me, which is that you said the goal of, of book six should be to get people into the original text. And I, I think that's always what adaptation should aim for, you know, is that it, it, you are creating a new thing, no matter what it is, even if it's a totally literal, you know, new thing, but the goal of it should always be to point back to the original source material. And, you know, and that's, you know, frankly, what, what's gone wrong with so many uh, streaming adaptations of, of popular fantasy series 
is that it's divided the fandom and, and pitted them against each other. People that love the show or people that love the book. And if you love the book, then you hate the show. And if you love the show, then you hate the book. And I've just never understood this. Like, why would creators want to do this? Why would they want to split a fandom and turn it against itself? And I think, yeah, it doesn't make any sense. And so I, I love what you're doing, that you are pointing people back to the original. So by doing that, does the language itself kind of progress from book one to book six? Does it change and become more poetic? Like, or is it just that you provide more material? Like, tell me about that process of how you prepare people for that. It remains prose throughout. Okay. So at, say, say, for example, at the end, one of the complexities of Spencerian poetry is that he is following a very, you know, nine lines and he's following a very specific rhyme scheme. So if you only have, you know, lines that end in the same sound, three, three or four different same sounds, you're going to have to take your sentence and flip words around and put a verb maybe at the end, you know, at a strange place or at the beginning. And, you know, the, the order, the natural order of a sentence is going to get jumbled. And so simply unjumbling a sentence is helpful to people who aren't accustomed to that. But I can also at the end, people are more familiar with what an epic convention is. So they might re- recognize, okay, here's a simile. Here's a long extended epic simile. And so I'm not, and we also italicized all those so people would understand how to kind of manage some of those things. But I think just from the lack, I might feel differently about this had I not been a teacher for so long, but so much of literature is helping people not to be intimidated so that they have the courage to progress and to fight the fight of understanding. There needs to be sort of a humility to, and a welcoming, um, a generosity, and a come sit at the hearthness to uh, helping people be introduced to things. Not a high-minded elitism, but just a, I think you would really enjoy this if you wouldn't be scared. And if you will let me take your hand and lead you a little bit into it, I think you'll fall in love with it. And I think you'll want to progress um, because the goal isn't just to be intelligent. The goal is to be changed and to become, to become better people. That's my desire. Yeah. And that, that tracks directly with something we mentioned off air is that a lot of people see poetry as a status symbol. Well, there's a reason people feel that way. I don't want to blame them for feeling that way because so often in school it is taught as an achievement instead of a common language in which we all have these things locked inside us and they're complicated and they're painful sometimes and they're full of longing and we need a means of connecting ourselves to each other and poetry is one of the ways that we can do that and yeah the intimidation factor is very sad uh to me because i feel like we could be healed through a lot of things that once people comprehend them they can realize they're not alone in the world and that other people have had those deep unspeakable feelings. Rebecca, as you were speaking uh, earlier, I was thinking of themes of incarnation and salvation, which of course are at the very heart of biblical Christianity. You're speaking of uh, avoiding this idea of this kind of standoffish, uh, I'm, I'm up here uh, with, with my poetry uh, and y'all are down there, y'all don't get it. You know, you're going to have to work to come up here and understand this uh, often esoteric, uh, seemingly inaccessible language. <laughs> uh, and yet, if God himself, uh, the infinite, omni-everything creator of the universe, can incarnate as a man with the second person of the Trinity, fully God and fully man at once, then how much more should Christians be predisposed to stoop 
to lower themselves, uh, to empty themselves uh, of, uh, of rights as Christ did, uh, and, and, and be willing to teach, be willing to help change, be willing to dwell among. Uh, we just got finished celebrating Christmas uh, with the, those themes of Emmanuel, God with us. Uh, I will occasionally see this, uh, at least I don't think it's educators' fault necessarily, uh, but it, it does seem uh, an impression uh, that I get if someone says, no, it needs to stay the original language. Uh, don't go translating, don't go uh, adapting. Uh, folks need to earn that status. And yet this is also kind of an old theme uh, with, the, with the historical church of do we or how do we communicate God's word if it is in, in a language that the people cannot access? How should that be translated? Who should translate it? Uh, what you're doing, it sounds to me, is a form of translation. But in this case, it's actually different because someone reading uh, an English version of the Bible uh, in the 17th century is not necessarily expected then to go and read uh, the Latin Vulgate or anything like that, uh, much less the Greek and Hebrew manuscripts. Uh, they're going to be getting God's word as best the translators could manage it. But in your case, you've said something very important, uh, and that applies directly to me. Uh, who's the audience for this project? I am. Uh, I would find poetry, even modern language poetry, a little bit less accessible. I'm a prose person. I'm I recognize that as a shortcoming, but something like this is for me then to understand the epic and adventure and the classic motifs that are in this, uh, reflections of God's grace in a, in a common grace way at least. Uh, and then maybe then I can go read all 36,000 <laughs> lines of the original with the jumbled uh, subject verbs and all of this and uh, the alternate endings to books three and or six uh, and book seven is a fragment and all of this. So one of the, I, I can tell you what you will miss in the prose, uh, at least some okay. of it, um, especially with the way Elizabethan language works. Often wit was a huge part of it. And you probably are familiar with this. If you've experienced Shakespeare, it'll be one word and it'll mean three different things. Um, or, you know, the, the poetic devices, uh, how sounds connect and what those, the, the feeling that those sounds would give. Like if you're talking about the ocean, you know, it have words that are more rolling and crashing and the pacing and the how you use meter and rhyme to imitate what's happening in the story. So those are things that I attempted to translate and through some footnotes sometimes, hey, there's not a word that means both of these things in, or three of these things in English now. But here's the word I'm choosing and here's what you're missing. I put those in the footnotes at the bottom. So there are so footnotes, there, there are annotations oh, that will help. Yeah, Galore, like a ton huh? of, okay. tons of footnotes, oh, but you fantastic. don't have to read them. All right. Okay. <laughs> but how how thick will this book be? Like how many pages? It's all, it's all one book. Ooh, three volumes. Three volumes. Okay, three volumes. Oh, yes, that's mm -hmm. right, because we've seen them. We've seen the um, the, the, the hardback uh, 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 pictures. We'll have to maybe put those in the show notes as well. Yeah. Wow, it's, so two um, books per volume? Two books per volume, and then we put okay. the fragment of seven in the third. Oh, okay. So that will be in there. Oh, that sounds spectacular. So, so you might miss then some of the nuances of the Elizabethan wit and the, the rhymes that make you feel the effect of the language, uh, which, which prose sacrifices for the sake of clarity. But we are also gaining these glorious illustrations then from a professional illustrator. Uh, I don't have his name in front of me, but I saw that he has actually done work for major motion picture studios and everything. Uh, Justin Gerard. This is the, 
That's him. That's the picture that you see when you go to fairyqueen.com. And I, I think we have that in the uh, uh, featured image if we can for, for this episode. Uh, what, how, how has it been working with him to come up with these illustrated versions of what Spencer's describing? It has been one of the biggest gifts of my life. Um, Justin is so profoundly gifted and yet so humble. And he had no ego at all in the, he understood the, ba- the magnitude of what we were doing. He, un- he loves Tolkien. He loves Lewis. He's got the depth of heart. He doesn't just have artistic skill. He has the story in him that gives him the capacity to do a project like this. And so I would spend hours just recording. This is what happens in the plot. He would draw while listening. And so he sat under the text in a way that I want to call like exegetical or, you know, like that one use words like that for the, the approach that he took. And yet he also allowed the story to come alive in him. And at times would take liberties that expanded it and um, were harmonious with what I think Spencer was trying to do, but also uh, were individual and unique. So he's, he's incredible. He's incredible. Well, that is spectacular to see. And the uh, Kickstarter is getting started just this week uh, with the release of these volumes then scheduled for uh, September of this year. Uh, How is that Kickstarter going to work? Uh, Folks will have to go to that link to get all the details of the rankings and all of that. But what led you all to go the uh, the Kickstarter route? That's a really good question. Um, You know, as an author, I started out as an author and was very baffled about why the publishing industry worked the way it did and was very critical severe sometimes, too severe. But then I got into kind of behind the scenes and I realized unless enough income is generated to produce the things that you really want to produce, then the income won't be there to make those things. Like, you know, you you do have to have money to make books. So my publisher actually is the one who initially suggested Kickstarter. He has a Kickstarter history. And then as I started to get involved in Kind of a big book company who I won't name, but you know what I'm saying. Like I started to realize how much of profit just goes to these monopolies and how little authors ever get and how little um, the publishing companies that have taken the risk get. And I thought there's got to be a way for writers and publishers to connect with the audience. And what we're ultimately hoping to do is reduce noise. So we're not going to have just the garbage books that jack up your adrenaline and your you know cortisol just to just for kicks to generate the the cheap money we're saying we're going to do a few things we're they're going to be meaningful we're going to trust that the right readers come to help to 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 be a part of this and it just feels like a, a more ethical way to create in some ways so we'll see if it works but we're going to try I've seen a lot more uh, Christian creators and other creators using these fundraiser methods uh, to speak to the kinds of stories that they want. Uh, you mentioned the noise, and I, I think that that's, uh, that's being generated by um, a, certainly a very online uh, culture uh, and a lot of obsessions, I think sometimes necessary, but sometimes it's more of a desperation move, these obsessions with political causes. That seems to me to be, I mentioned the word desperate, like, there's a hierarchy of needs. And certainly if you feel like your entire people group or value system is under attack uh, politically and religiously in the culture wars, you're going to devote all your resources to that. But for those who maybe do not feel this way, uh, for those who want to aim then for these higher virtues, I mean, these are the kinds of books that we want. We want these books that are not just trying to make us feel something, anything, 
to be loved, to be wanted, you know, to have food and shelter uh, and satisfaction. Once you get those needs taken care of, as I think Jesus says, your heavenly father knows you need these things. We then can seek the kingdom, uh, not just great literature, but great literature that helps us see that kingdom a little bit more, uh, that helps us to long for that world that I believe Jesus Christ is actually going to bring to earth, as it describes at the end of Revelation. And these, uh, these stories about monsters and virtuous heroes, uh, whether or not they started out uh, trying to teach ethics and then just getting lost in the world. Like, getting lost in the world is an act of humility, uh, like you were mm-hmm. describing earlier. And that is something that Christians very badly need to practice. I think there's a time for maybe even a culture skirmish or two, but it needs to be um, a means to another end. And stories like this help us to see that end much more clearly, to glorify God as a response to his creation, and then sometimes create stuff like this, uh, good and beautiful and true things uh, that shine his glory back to him. Yeah, I think I think your point is a really good one. And I think if you look at the effect of all of that noise, what what, what does it accomplish? It's a lot of it, it. I feel like, do you remember the Duffelpuds in Narnia? You know, this, oh, yes, the, the creatures absolutely. who just... Don Treader, I, yes. I thought about them so much the past five, six years, just about the thirst for chaos and getting upset over things that aren't true and just this kind of multiplication of chaos and uh, (laughs) an energy that is pointless energy. And so why add to that? Yes. Uh, Going back a few islands, uh, sticking with Dawn Treader, which, by the way, I recognize the line of uh, of your book, Courage, Dear Heart. That's what uh, Aslan as the albatross whispers to Lucy during the throes of the the dark island where they're having all the nightmares. But a few islands ago, you have uh, Caspian, uh, the still new king of Narnia, landing with all his heraldry and all of his Narnian-ness on the Lone Islands, which have been taken over by this uh, slovenly government. And all the soldiers are in disarray and they're wiping their mouths. And Governor Gumpus is uh, sprawled across the desk with all his papers. And it's so bureaucratic and gross and practical. Uh, and then the king and his men just throw aside the table and say, that's enough of that. Uh, these are our islands. They were all along uh, by all right of uh, Narnian authority. We're taking this place back. No more slave trade, by the way. They get rid of that sort of thing. Uh, and they bring this spirit of celebration and uh, Narnian-ness to the islands. And that's, that's what I want to see more of uh, when we can as Christians. I love that. What a great vision. Tis indeed. Well, Lewis, of course, but Lewis got a lot of this stuff from Spencer. Uh, you mentioned uh, uh, Tolkien and McDonald Chesterton as well. Uh, all of these uh, patron saints uh, of uh, Christian literature now have themselves uh, Edmund Spencer to thank. And I, I may have heard his name checked here and there, but again, it's one of those authors that we just don't know enough about. So I'm glad to see more exposure being given uh, to this project now. And this gives me a lot of credibility now when talking with my middle school and high school daughters who are learning a lot about poetry right now and peppering me with questions about poetry as though I'm supposed to know. <laughs> but yeah, I, I've forgotten so much of what I learned about poetry. So now it's going to be really cool to share this episode with them and even talk about, you know, iambic pentameter versus hexameter versus this, uh, you know, this interesting uh, format that he created. Yeah. And I just keep going back to this 36,000 lines of poetry. Like that's just staggering to think about that. Well, his goal, and I should have mentioned this earlier when you were asking about why he did this, but um, Edmund Spencer was trying to create a 
a poem for England that would have been sort of the national epic to complement Queen Elizabeth I and also to elevate his nation. And so he was trying to create something sort of like the Iliad and the Odyssey, something on that level. And so that's why he employs a lot of epic conventions and, and things that you would find in those older works of literature. So when you get into epic poetry and uh, adventures like this, I, I think uh, if, I, if I'm a parent out there of young kids, uh, I'd be asking, oh, is this, is this good for my kids? Is this good? Uh, is it a good learning tool? Uh, and what sorts of ages do you imagine that these uh, readers would be for a poem that has, uh, as you mentioned earlier, I think uh, somebody drinking blood and then exploding. Uh, <laughs> that doesn't sound too family friendly, but for an older reader, it sounds kind of awesome. So long as they're not sinning yeah. with that. So uh, who yeah. who is the, who's the age demographic uh, for this project? Well, for context and that is not just gratuitous violence. The, the creature is error and error is vomiting. Uh, books and frogs and all these things, this heretical teachings. So the, the Red Cross Knight is attacking this creature who is a creature of darkness who doesn't want to be seen in the light. And of course, as heresy tends to do, it gives birth to smaller heresies. And these are the little babies. These are the creatures. And so normally when they get scared, they crawl in the mother's mouth to escape. And so when he cuts off her head, instead of, um, it's sort of like a dark side to the um, you know, taking communion, if you're going to commune with forces of darkness, instead of being brought to light, where you take the blood and the, the body and blood of Jesus and are brought to life, um, these creatures immediately go to, instead of suckle their mother, they uh, drink up her blood and they have no self-control. And just like you would do if you are adopting heresy into yourself, they eventually drink without reserve and they in their bodies explode and so there's actually a spiritual reason um for all of this it's not just for kicks it's teaching and uh it, the story is very powerful and good so c.s lewis said that every child and i can't remember the quote exactly but he said every child should read the fairy queen from i think between the ages of 12 and 16 in a highly illustrated volume on a rainy day <laughs> i would say 12 is a little young especially since I am making clear what would somehow a little bit be veiled. Um, and also mm. kids were reading things that were a little more, I know we think of this as being so progressive and kids are exposed to everything, but in terms of reading material, kids were reading some pretty intense stuff when they were younger. Um, I, as a parent, I probably wouldn't give this to a kid until he or she was 15 or 16, maybe, maybe 14. I would I would just have to look at it ahead of time because the evil is evil. It's not like he toned down evil. Evil has to be that bad for good to vanquish it. And so I think it's a good thing to show evil as as intense, as bad as it is. He in one of the when I was trying to read Edgar Allan Poe as an audiobook, um, I consulted with Jonathan Rogers because we were reading his Gothic romances. And I was like, Jonathan, I don't, how do, my heart's a little confused about if I should be doing this. And he gave me the most helpful advice. He said he, it, he is good with literature as long as evil is portrayed as evil and good is portrayed as good. And um, I thought that was a really helpful distinction. Yeah. Well, and, and that helps to hear that it's, it's basically a high school a level book, like you said, mm -hmm. PG 15 or PG 16. Yeah. That, that's kind of how we've divided up a lot of books in our family okay. is that these are elementary age, middle school, high school. And so I, I think that that sets a good boundary, you know, for parents. Mm -hmm. Again, this is a recommendation, you know, every parent's going to be a little different, 
Yeah. Some may want to wait till they're older, some till they're younger. But that's interesting about how poetry sort of kind of flies over people's heads about what it's implying. Like I, I still think of some Shakespeare lines that I read in mm-hmm. you know ninth grade that mm-hmm. didn't make sense to me for a few years, and now I always think about them. I'm like, wow, <laughs> that was uh, that was a little you know racy or whatever of Shakespeare <laughs> right. to make right. that expression. Right. Um, but yes, I I really do appreciate that though that. The evil is portrayed as evil and the good is portrayed as good. And honestly, that's just refreshing with, with the, so much of modern storytelling is, is the reverse. It, it's showing evil as good and good as evil, but it, it just shows us what the trend has been. The, the trend has been to either soften evil or help us sympathize with evil. And, you know, and we've made the point before that we need strong and clear villains. And yes, we, we want villains that make sense that that aren't just necessarily cartoonish, but the, the whole purpose of a villain is to hold a mirror up to ourselves and see where does villainy come from? You know, it it comes from every human heart. Villainy isn't something that's just out there. It's something that's in here. It's in everyone. This is what Chesterton talked about that, you know, what's the problem with the world? I am. And it's so often when, when evil is not portrayed correctly, it, it can make us feel a little self-righteous or it can make us feel uh, complacent. But when it's portrayed clearly, then we, we truly see how it works and what it leads to. And it, and that's the, I mean, that's what the whole book of Proverbs is written about. It's like, here's what villainy and, and foolishness looks like so that you won't fall into it uh, rather than just like, oh, you know, being a villain is cool. You know, no, it, it's not. It leads to ruin. That's good. Readers also need to prepare themselves for the complex storytelling that he, he's, as I said before, he's not simple. And so, for example, you're going to see the, the, the redemption story in book one. Book two, he's going to try on Aristotelian ethics. And so uh, with that, it was like, what is goodness? You know, and Aristotle believed it was the middle between two extremes. And then you get on. And so he, third book three, he's dealing with chastity. Um, book four, he's dealing with friendship. Book five, he's dealing with justice. Book six, he's dealing with courtesy. And so at first you might think that Spencer is suggesting one thing, but he's going to let the story do the work and he's going to test out an idea and he's going to. So um, I guess that would be a good preface to give as well, that don't take the first thing you think he's saying as the final thing that he's going, that's, that, that may not be where he lands. Well, that's what Zach was mentioning with the wisdom literature. You get that, uh, for example, in the book of uh, Ecclesiastes and some of the other, uh, some of the other more complex uh, ethical wrestlings you get in the Bible. Rebecca, you of course already had me uh, with the proposal for this this project. Just the basic description is enough to uh, make me a supporter. But you would have definitely had me by describing a heresy hydra that vomits <laughs> up uh, <laughs> volumes of false teaching uh, and then has this whole thing with the, uh, with the inverted uh, Eucharist going on there. Uh, that's incredible. And I wish to see this prodigiously illustrated, though not yeah. with modern books being represented as being vomited up because we don't want to offend too many people. But that wouldn't be funny, wouldn't it? That'd be, <laughs> that'd be hilarious Just to see your, your old favorite there in the illustration. Um, I, I'm really looking forward to this. I'm looking forward to the Kickstarter launch. Uh, we have all the links for that atop the show notes. But where can, uh, out loud, where can folks go to learn more about Sky Turtle and specifically the Fairy Queen uh, Kickstarter? We have not focused as much on promotion because I have been sitting in libraries for seven hours at a time studying gotcha. little teeny tiny phrases. But um, uh, we, I can do that part. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess a good place to go would be www 
fairyqueen.com and that's f-a-e-r-i-e q-u-e-e-n-e.com and there's a link to the kickstarter on the right uh, there's also a link you know the to the preview where you can register we are having a first day giveaway and it's pretty cool i don't know if you know who michael kaluta is the famous comic illustrator but um he's wonderful and he did an illustration for us and so everybody who invested a certain i think it's 40 dollars by on day one they get a signed print by him which is incredible Ooh. and it's wow. of um fairy queen fighting error the the monster that we just talked so, okay. All right. Well, right. you know what, folks? I heard about it a few days before <laughs> the Kickstarter opened, so I may have just availed myself of that opportunity. <laughs> Y'all might be late, but them's the breaks. Uh, I have to get that <laughs> illustration. That is spectacular. I want to hang that probably here in this very studio. Uh, hopefully as an act of humility and challenge and not, haha, I'm off uh, conquering the heresy hydra. <laughs> Uh, spectacular so fairyqueen.com all the links there uh, you'll find them in our show notes for this episode uh, as well as some of the pictures that you get to see coming up in this uh, spectacular uh, modernized in order to promote the classic uh, adaptation of the epic fairy queen poem by edmund spencer rebecca it's been great to learn from you get to get to know you i look forward to more of the same as we move forward with this project and learning more about what it's like uh, flying up there among the stars uh, on the back of the sky turtle. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's been so much fun. Thanks for joining us. Steven, that was such a fun discussion with Rebecca. I love this uh, German word that she brought up. I had to go back and look this up, but it's Zinzucht or Sin. She pronounced it differently. Yeah, there is a different pronunciation I don't know because how it's German. It. Yeah, I yeah. don't want to do a bad uh, German pronunciation Right, here. but it's a uh, German word translated as a longing or yearning for something inexpressible, a homesickness for a place you've never been. Uh, some other trans or some other uh, search results for this word, it, it's far sickness, and I really like that. Uh, another word is fernweb. But anyway, I like this word of far sickness, and I found a really good article from Focus on the Family I can link to. And, you know, this was really central to Lewis's own conversion, and it's something that he wove into a lot of his stories and writings. It's this whole, you know, we have a desire for another world that shows that we were made for another world. And I love that this whole story of the Fairy Queen is that idea is really woven into it. That, you know, you're going to this far off land to, to fight monsters, to, to rescue people. And I love that the author even sort of got swept away himself into that world and, and, and sort of took him out of his own, you know, allegorical or didactic purpose. And he got himself just swept away into this world because we are drawn to that, that greater transcendent beauty that storytelling points us towards. So I, I can't wait for this to come out and I'll, I'll see if I experience something similar, but that is a very, that's a favorite concept of mine that happens in stories. Well, over at the comp station, we got a note from L.M. Ransom Writes, who remarked about episode 144 and said, quote, not a big fan of the Willow show, but my hubby and I really like the new Middle Earth one, end quote. And yeah, you know, we uh, we don't have a great opinion of, of it as we shared, but, you know, but we've also not really dove into it either. And look, we, we think it's great. Enjoy what you want to enjoy um, to our listener and to, to anyone else. You know, you don't need to apologize uh, for anything that you enjoy because we all are going to have different tastes. 
Um, I probably will jump into the Rings of Power show because we're, uh, we're, we're canceling some of our other streaming services, so our, our options are much more limited. And, uh, you know, I want to see it just to kind of see it. I, I don't mind uh, venturing out there into things that I may or may not like. But uh, I, I've seen some other fans say, hey, it's great to have a show about fantasy and, and swords and dragons and not a lot of R-rated content. <laughs> and I can definitely relate to that. You know, you just want to get swept away into this other world, but it not be so offensive to your eyes and ears and imaginations. Zach, that's a really good point. And I'm glad you also raised the question about that far sickness feeling or that uh, that otherworldly longing that's captured by that German word uh, that was so crucial to C.S. Lewis's thinking. I think if that show, if Rings of Power or any other show that's not like actually exploitative or sin inducing, if you are getting that feeling from that show and then not just sitting there with that feeling, but then tracing it back to its giver, capital G then I think it's uh, dangerous, uh, if not obnoxious, uh, to critique the show and only talk about uh, the armor looking bad or looking cheap or, or the actors uh, looking differently than you expected. Uh, or even, I think, my more, uh, hopefully more valid criticism of some of the egalitarian impulses that are in this show. That was my main objection, not so much all the political attacks that I saw from YouTubers and such, uh, but simply the idea of, of having Galadriel and other people uh, defy as if it is intrinsic to the world building, uh, defy the chivalry that was so crucial to Tolkien's sense of the world, uh, in which men to the front lines, uh, women and children uh, to the secure spaces along with the wounded, not because women can't fight, but because they and the children are a resource for the culture. Uh, to me, that's a break in the world building, but you may not see it that way, faithful listener. In fact, you may be able to worship God more effectively through enjoying the show because you're not comparing it to uh, the Tolkien books first and foremost. Uh, maybe you're more comparing it to the films, or maybe you're comparing it to even uh, an R-rated, uh, more nihilistic series like Game of Thrones. If that's your point of comparison, then of course it's going to look great. Uh, you may be a, a point of in your life where a show like this comes along and it is refreshing and positive and you just don't care about the cheap looking armor or any, or any of the other criticisms or nitpicks, uh, or you can even look past uh, the, uh, the egalitarian themes there and, and some of the other collapsing of Tolkien's ideas and even his timeline. I personally can't look past that, but technically that is subjective. Either way at Lorehaven, we want to make a secure space to talk about these things I did get some other comments about uh, this element of the show, at least based on the show notes or my posts about the show notes. And some folks are reluctant to talk about it uh, because it's gotten so politically charged to talk about Rings of Power. And I do admit that some of the conversation got pretty toxic about it. That's why we avoided it for a long time on Fantastical Truth, uh, not just because we haven't seen it or haven't seen it yet uh, in your case, Zach. Um, I, I don't want that toxicity, but I would also point out that to some extent, Amazon picked the fight or the Amazon marketing picked the fight. I do want to say that maybe Greedo shot first. Uh, maybe it wasn't uh, the revised version or, or, or Han shot first, uh, yeah. whichever you're. Yeah, only Which, Han shot. Only Han shot. First. Okay, yeah. so did Han, that is, did fan, did Fawn shoot, <laughs> did fans shoot first? Or did Greedo Amazon shoot first? That's kind of the debate. I would just point out that Amazon, in the beginning at least, put out a lot of videos where they were playing up a lot of political sounding stuff. 
at least alongside, oh, yes, we're going to respect Tolkien, even if it's going to be an adaptation. Uh, whereas a lot of people did have as their point of comparison, uh, Peter Jackson, for all his faults, saying we're not going to put our own political views into the Lord of the Rings films. We're going to try as best we can to let Tolkien's world speak for itself. Uh, Rebecca was alluding to some of that about the Fairy Queen, where there was some politics in there, like endorsing uh, Elizabeth I and all of this. Uh, but then the story seems to have overwhelmed any of the ethical ideas that uh, Edmund Spencer wanted to talk about. Uh, if that ends up happening with Rings of Power, uh, which is not complete yet, uh, if second season is better than the first, then who knows? I, I may end up joining in. Uh, we'll have to see. But uh, Lorehaven should be a place uh, where people can take either side of that or come up with a novel side of their own. Yeah, and it seems to me that what this really comes down to is do you love the original author as much as you love the modern audience. And I think that's what Rebecca does seem to be doing really well. It's a deep respect and honoring of the original author, but just saying, Hey, it's been 500 years since this came out and people just don't think in these poetic terms. Let's just change it so that people today can understand it, but so that they will also want to go back and read it. You know, um, Andrew Peterson had a great quote on the Fairy Queen website that he's always heard of this and always wanted to read it, but doesn't, but felt intimidated by it, you know, as an adult felt intimidated. So imagine a high school student. And I love that Rebecca is holding both of those, a, a love for the reader and a love for the original author. And I think that is where a lot of adaptations today fail is that they, they sort of overemphasize in love the modern audience to the exclusion of the original author or even the original audience. And I, I think that's what is so, you know, it's that lopsidedness that causes everything to go wrong. Well, to you, our listener, if you have any more thoughts about this, or if you have thoughts about the fairy queen, we'd, we'd love to hear from those of you that have read the fairy queen, the original 36,000 line uh, poem. So send us a note to podcast at lorehaven.com. Tell us your thoughts about it or comment anywhere on social media. Just look for Lorehaven. Meanwhile, at lorehaven.com, let's go over our mission log for the last couple of weeks. And then going forward, uh, last Friday, we published uh, two retro reviews of the first two Chronicles of Narnia, uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, as well as Prince Caspian. The uh, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's no anniversary or anything that I know of. Uh, we're just catching up uh, to reviews before doing a review of Prince Caspian, uh, which is book two, at least in publication order. And it's also the subject of our book quest in the Lorehaven Guild. So if you comment there in the Lorehaven Guild, you will sometimes end up in the comm station uh, with permission as well. But it's a great way to mingle with folks who are listening not only to this podcast, uh, but also following all of the other work we're doing at lorehaven.com. Uh, we're doing book reviews every Friday. You can sign up for those email updates and choose to get those if you like, uh, as well as articles. Uh, we're getting back into articles this year, working on some really interesting stuff, uh, such as a new article coming up, uh, hopefully this week, uh, from Josiah DeGraff, who's talking about how Christians can engage with this idea of fictional dialogue for Jesus Christ. For example, in a multi-season, increasingly popular, fan-supported series about the life of Jesus Christ through the disciples' perspective, The Chosen, uh, Zach knows I've gotten a little uh, irritated, uh, hopefully in a godly manner, this past week, because I've seen a lot more shade thrown at this show some frankly bad discernment takes. Uh, this is an issue that Christians struggle with, uh, not just with pictures of Jesus or dialogue for Jesus and things, but asking the right questions about stories. Uh, stories are not sermons. They're not meant to be. So if you're saying, well, that story didn't behave like a sermon, I'm thinking, duh, 
Uh, you may as well <laughs> expect a poem to behave like prose and then get upset when it doesn't fulfill the, the expectation. Uh, Christians need to be discerning not just about content comparisons, but with art forms and what they're for, what their purpose is. Ask that question. What is the purpose of fiction? Does it have a purpose? If not, be consistent. So we'll have more stuff about that coming up at Lorehaven, as well as those book reviews, new podcasts every Tuesdays as well. Next on Fantastical Truth, this will be this coming Tuesday, Lord willing. Have you been watching that other hit Christian-made streaming series, The Wingfeather Saga? No doubt you've heard about the fantasy books by singer-songwriter Andrew Peterson. This story of the Igaby family's darkly whimsical journey has attracted legions of readers of all ages. Now it has become a streaming series from Angel Studios. And in our next episode, CG director Keith Lango will visit us to share more about the origins of this animated story, the Wingfeather Saga. Meanwhile, whether or not you love poems or prefer prose or are still a little partial to nonfiction, I think it's important to recognize that Jesus has given human beings this wide variety of creative gifts to reflect his glory back to him. He has created his original world, and we see what we see in landscapes and other stories from history or newer, and we are meant to respond with acts of worship, which can include singing and poems and prose. It can all give glory to him. That's important to remember as we continue to seek and find his fantastical truth. <laughs>